It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, April 29th, 2022, on Lisa Brady. A new plan for the southern border, but will it make a dent in the migrant surge? Unless they decide to change policy, they're going to continue to have an operational tempo along that border that is just trying to shovel the, the water out of a sinking boat at the moment. I'm Chris Foster. The pro wrestler and Fox News personality Tyrus has a new best-selling book about his life and lessons learned. It's not what you're going through. It's your reaction to what you're going through is how you're going to be judged and remembered. And so I lived that with it's my reaction. And that took all the power away from the negative stuff when and never accepting no. And I'm Jason Chaffetz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. It's been a long week on Capitol Hill for Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas defending the administration's handling of the southern border at a trio of House hearings over two days. We inherited a broken and dismantled system that is already under strain. It is not built to manage the current levels and types of migratory flows. Only Congress can fix this. Also telling all three committees that a six-point plan detailed this week has been months in the making, including a surge in resources to help speed up the processing and removal of migrants as the agency and border communities brace for a potentially bigger surge once Title 42 is lifted. The CDC says that COVID-related order allowing many asylum seekers to be turned away should end next month. The court has put that on hold temporarily. My constituents want you impeached because they believe you've committed treason. They believe you're a traitor. Colorado Congressman Ken Buck accusing Mayorkas of intentionally not enforcing immigration laws, a line of attack repeated by many Republican lawmakers, including Ohio's Jim Jordan, who says the goal is to get as many illegal immigrants into the country as possible. The chaos on our southern border is not an accident. It's deliberate. It's on purpose. It's by design. Republicans also hammering away at concerns about crime, terror suspects and drugs. White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki says they're willing to work with any lawmaker. There need to be fixes at the border, whether that is smarter security funding or fixing the asylum processing system that's long been broken. Still, Mayorkas says the border has been effectively managed. Well, I think most reasonable Americans would say that that's absurd. He also talks about how the border is still secure, in his words, and that he has operational control of that southern border. Chad Wolf is the former acting Homeland Security Secretary and president of Wolf Global Advisors. Which is just, it's absurd any any which way you look at it or any metric that you look at. So when you have 221,000 illegal apprehensions, you have 80% of Border Patrol not on the border. And you have 20 to 40, maybe 60,000 gotaways in one month alone. That's not operational control. You do not have operational control of the border. And it's certainly not secure. We also heard a number during the hearing of 42 known or suspected terrorists that they have encountered. So it's not secure. And I think he does a disservice to the men and women of the department and really hurts the credibility of the department when he makes these statements when, again, most reasonable Americans would say it's not even close to being secure. Republican lawmakers 
hit Secretary Mayorkas especially hard during Thursday's Judiciary Committee hearing in the House, saying he should resign or even be impeached, accusing him of intentionally not enforcing border security and suggesting it's treason. Is that going too far? Well, here's what I'd say, and here's why they're concerned, right? Because the secretary keeps talking about they have a plan and they're executing on their plan. But their plan for the last 15 months is to see historic numbers of illegal apprehensions. And if that is their plan that they're executing on, and you have to assume it is, then yes, I think that that is very worrisome, that the plan is to encourage historic numbers of individuals to cross that border illegally and not put in a deterrent and not build immigration enforcement pathways to remove these individuals. So if that is truly their plan, yes, that is concerning. And I think you really need to take a look at whether or not he's doing his job that he took the oath to do and that he's required to do by Congress. You know, if you look at the 2006 Secure Fence Act, there's a requirement in there that he shall, I think is the words that they use, maintain operational control over that border. And if he is taking certain positions that undercut that or make it impossible for his agents to have, then he's ignoring the law. If he did resign or he were to be impeached, though, would that just end up being another hurdle, taking time away from trying to address what's happening on the border? Well, I think the bigger point maybe to your question is, if it's not Secretary Mayorkas, then it's someone else, right? And it's someone else that has the same position that the Biden administration does. So I think most congressional Republicans are frustrated because they're not getting clear answers to their questions. The secretary is very good at filibustering a question during a hearing and not being forthcoming and not being transparent. And they're frustrated about that. They're frustrated about the situation on the border and the fact that after 14 months, it's not getting it's not improving. But then to have the secretary to say it's under control and it's, you know, it's a secure border. They're not being truthful. So that's their frustration at the end of the day. But the concern is, you know, you put someone else in there, does it get any better? And I don't know that it does under this administration. And unless they decide to change policy, they're going to continue to have an operational tempo along that border that is just trying to shovel the the water out of a sinking boat at the moment. To play devil's advocate for a minute, the administration, regardless of the numbers, would likely say, no, we don't have some plan to try to let as many illegal immigrants into the country as possible. So from that standpoint, is that a dangerous argument for Republicans to be making? Because to a lot of Americans, it might sound more like a conspiracy theory. Well, I don't think it is a conspiracy theory. I know I know it's it's almost unbelievable. Uh, right. So some people would say it's so unbelievable that that can't be reality. And if it's not reality, then, yes, you know, perhaps it is a conspiracy theory. I, I don't think that's the case because. I think you have to you have to take them on their word. You look at 14 months of historic illegal immigration, historic illegal apprehension, and historic number of gotaways and deaths in custody and on and on and on. And then the secretary will say that we have a plan and we're executing on our plan. And so the question is, if the plan isn't what it appears to be, then what is the plan? And is the plan to enforce the law along that border? Because for 14 months, that's not the case. And so I think they're asking some very basic questions up there, which is if you've got a plan to get this under control, A, what is it and how long does it take? I mean, I've been in the seat. It's hard, but you have to make hard decisions. If Congress isn't going to act, you can't always rely on Congress to act. And so you have to start using your own authorities to do certain things that are hard decisions. And we don't see any of that coming from this administration. So if they decided not to do that, 
then the plan that they say they are executing is the plan that you see today. And that plan results in historic numbers of individuals coming across that border that are released into the country. What about this new six point plan that includes things like sending hundreds more agents to the border and increasing enforcement of deporting migrants who don't qualify for asylum and detaining single adults? Can that be effective in your opinion? I think that plan is more smoke and mirrors than anything else. I think it was released a day before the secretary had three different congressional hearings as a way to blunt some of the criticism. There's nothing new in that plan. It's everything that they should have been doing since day one. It's all authorities and it's all programs that are in place today. It's it's all of those things we were doing in the Trump administration and more. So this idea that you're going to roll this six point plan out and say, well, this will solve the problem. It won't. It hasn't solved it from day one of this administration. And frankly, it didn't solve it under the Trump administration. We did all of those things, you know, working with Central America, expedited removal, I think, is in that plan. And it helped marginally, but it did not solve the problem. That's why we had to come up with things like Remain in Mexico and the asylum cooperative agreements and other programs that have been dismantled. Because what we saw was the normal run of the mill everyday programs that that are outlined in that plan that frankly the obama administration used trump administration and now biden simply don't work they're not going to get you out of the level of crisis that we are in at the moment they've taken us to such a dramatic place it takes dramatic measures to get out of this and these you know that six point plan is simply not it Two policies that started during the Trump administration remain in Mexico and Title 42, that COVID era rule, are essentially tied up in court right now. How much of an additional surge do you think is coming, um, for instance, if and when Title 42 is actually lifted? And how much time is actually needed to really be ready for that? Well, a couple of points on Title 42. I think you hear a lot about, you know, from the administration, and some of that is in that six-point plan, talking about surging resources. I think you mentioned that, right? And he mentions that in his plan. And when you do that, you're simply managing the crisis. You're not trying to solve the crisis. You're actually just trying to facilitate quicker processing into the country. And that's just going to facilitate more and more individuals coming into the country. It's a demand signal. Uh, You're signaling that if you come to the border and you cross illegally, we're simply going to process you quicker to get you to your final destination. So there's no deterrent in that. And so I would say that their whole strategy is the wrong strategy. And I don't think anyone expects them to go from historic you know, numbers to dramatically low numbers, but you would see slow improvements. Instead, it almost is almost every month is getting worse and worse and worse. So it's clear their, their plans not working at the end of the day. But if you remove title 42, I think you will see a surge. And I think the secretary talks about this either in his plan or or public here recently that they started planning in September of 21 for the removal of Title 42. Right. So that's six months. What they should have been doing is say, okay, Title 42 is going away. I need to come up with new policies and new programs that deter, that root out fraud in in the asylum system and do a number of things to address the surge to counteract Title 42. But they're not doing that. You've got to you've got to do something dramatic to get us out of where we're at now. And I don't you've got to bring deterrent back to the system and you've got to hold people accountable who choose to break the law and not think that everyone who applies for asylum is going to be granted asylum, which is a system that they have built. 
I wanted to ask you about the recent death of a Texas National Guard member who was trying to rescue migrants in the Rio Grande River, those migrants now accused of being drug smugglers. Um, His death led to another tug of war, basically, on the border security issue. The White House saying, you know, well, Texas sent the guard to the border and Texas saying we wouldn't have to if the federal government was doing its job. But, you know, my question is, are these kinds of arguments counterproductive to actually improving anything? And it's, you know, what's it going to take to actually get Congress to make a move and agree on something? Well, you know, first, obviously, my my thoughts and prayers go out to his family. But second, I would say it's a needless death. It should never have occurred because the federal government should be doing its job at the end of the day. So the National Guardsmen there or Texas Department of Public Safety shouldn't be on that border and enforcing the sovereignty of that border. That is a role for the federal government to roll for border patrol, but they have been told to stand down. So I appreciate your question, which is, well, you know, the bickering back and forth isn't helpful. I don't think that's the question. The question is, why isn't the federal government doing its job? And you can't just say, well, if the federal government's not doing it, no one's doing it. And so that's just how it's going to be. And I think what the governor of Texas has said is that's not good enough for my constituents and the people of Texas and Texans that if the federal government's not going to do their job and protect our communities, then we're going to have to step up and do it. So you have when you have no operational control of the border, when you have no process in place, this is the result of it. And it's it's tragic. Absolutely. But why did this happen? Why was a National Guard put in a place where they had to be patrolling a part of the river to begin with? And it's not just because Texas put them there. It's because the sovereignty of that border was being abused. There's no other country in the world that treats their borders the way that we do on our southern border. They actually patrol their border and they stop individuals from crossing that border that are illegally entering the country. Uh, But we seem not to do that. Chad Wolf, former acting Homeland Security Secretary and president of Wolf Global Advisors. We're always thankful for your time. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Guy Benson, join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. This is Jason Chaffetz with your Fox News commentary coming up. Tyrus has a lot to say and gets to say it as a Fox News personality co-hosting his own podcast, Tyrus and Timp, and on shows like Gutfeld, here questioning the need for the word marijuana to be replaced with cannabis in Washington state laws over concerns that marijuana has negative connotations. I, I just don't understand this, man. Marijuana never hurt nobody. It is the happy drug. <laughs> it is a happy little plant. You can't even say marijuana in a bad way. No, you can't. Like, Good morning, marijuana. You just, <laughs> hey. Chills. He had a whole life before coming to Fox as a college and semi-pro football player, teacher, bouncer, and bodyguard for the rapper Snoop. He's been an actor and a professional wrestler with the WWE, TNA, and now the National Wrestling Alliance. Before all that, he was an often homeless teenager from an abusive home as a child. You think about it in your head, and you replay things, and you kind of dumb it down, and you like you rationalize it, and you normalize it. His new book is called Just Tyrus, a memoir. Uh, when you're putting it on paper and someone's reading it back to you, or someone's editing it, it kind of takes you back there. And it was there were some moments where I kind of just... I have a difficult time writing the the childhood piece. It was a lot of that. It's good to go. It's good to go through the process of writing it down. I, I never. I kind of scoffed at things like that, but it really helps, and it also helps you put things in perspective. 
it was it was difficult, but a good difficult. If that makes any sense, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And I mean, like, look, you know that you pulled the knife on your dad when you were four years old, and it's in your head. But reading those words, like you said, did, did it seem like you, or does it seem like you? When you when you have a memory of something, it's through your eyes, and then when you write it down, it's like you're the narrator. You're like you're looking down on it, and that was that was different. And this is gonna sound weird, but I made a joke out of that story. Uh, the part about you know, on TV, when you stab a guy, he dies. You know, he just falls to the ground. And when I did that, he was just extremely pissed off. <laughs> so you kind of laugh. I mean, you laugh at that. But then if you read it where you're a four-year-old who's gone from hiding under the bed and wetting himself because he's scared all the time to trying to stab somebody, it's not as funny as you think. So it's just, it's really, I encourage anyone, everyone needs to write a book, whether you publish it or not, just to get a better understanding of yourself and kind of bring yourself back down to earth. Just hit a couple bullet points for people who don't know how you grew up. Grew up in, uh, started in Lynn, Massachusetts. Just real quick, see if you like, tell, so tell people was, in a couple of minutes what, okay. what your life was like up to. So I was my parents. My mother ran away from home. When she was fifteen. Uh, she met my biological father. He was nineteen, and uh, she she went from playing Barbies to being wow. uh, yeah. a pregnant fifteen year old who was about maybe ninety pounds soaking wet. <laughs> and this was the seventies in Massachusetts. It was actually illegal at the time for blacks and whites to get married in Boston. White mom, black dad. Yep. They moved them to New Hampshire. And I was in. I was born in uh, Exeter, New Hampshire, because he wouldn't be arrested for one, statutory rape, and two, which was the minor one, like they, uh, for the whole, um, the man act of uh, being black and her being white. So I was born there. My, and this is another thing. My best guess was that it was the city of Lynn. I knew I was there for a time, but we okay. didn't move around a lot. And it, it just went from her being treated like a princess to once I was born, that's when it became uh, violent. Yeah. And then you you had some adults in your life who were who were good people and, and maybe not so good people and some people like your mom. Your, your mom comes off to me like someone who was just trying to do her best. Yeah. My mother made decisions that as a child I didn't understand and resented her for it. And she was making decisions effectively as a child. Yeah, as herself. But as an adult and as a parent... I get it now because yeah. I, I one thing I say in the book is that she her always her biggest concern was making sure we were taken care of. That was more important to her than anything else was going on. I mean, there's one thing that you hear people say, well, I would never leave my children or never give my children up. If it was the best thing for your children, I think it's pretty selfless yeah. to do that. And you can put the negative spin on it. But just think about a mother who has nothing. And she's got to, you know, go back to school and get her life together. And she couldn't do both. So she had to make a really tough decision. And her only thing was that we had to stay together. And your she bro- did you, and your bro- you and your brother. Me and my brother, yeah. So. Um, and you were, she was back, she was out of your life. She was in your life. She was almost like a friend for a while. Yeah, I think that's the best way to describe So just to kind of give you an idea, when, when uh, the abuse from my father probably would still, I don't think she, it would have been the death of her had it not been turned on me. And you, we talked about the knife thing. It, with the, Attempting to stab him with the knife turned into one of the worst beatings of my life. And he was convinced that I was not his child at that point. And so then, which meant he was going to pass the savings on to her. But because he put hands on me and was attempting to basically throw me out a window of the uh, apartment that we were living in. And she talked him down. But once he had put hands on me, that's what triggered her to go, enough, that I got to get out. Yeah. And so that's what that made the change. But unfortunately, we got to my grandparents' house and it being the time, sign of the times, 
me and my brother were, were just, you can stay, but they can't. Um, it, it's not all doom and gloom. There's a lot of funny stories no, in yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's get on to those. Uh, you were a bodyguard for uh, Snoop for a while. Still friends to this day, right? Yeah. Um, bouncers and clubs. Tell the, uh, tell the Snoop story about uh, you're on tour in Russia, and the guy uh, comes up, claims to be the best-selling <laughs> oh, rapper in Russia. So by this time, I'm pretty much known for my bluntness, and I am the guy who ruins everyone's day, and I excel at it. So we're in Russia, and we're backstage, and Snoop usually, before he performs, he tends to like to like have a minute alone to just kind of like get his thoughts together, com- compress, and get ready to go uh, entertain for two or three hours or however long it was. And I, he's not to be disturbed in this time, and I'm usually on the door for that. And lo and behold, here comes a guy who... No one could have wrote this guy any better than he had a velvet suit on. Now, not not a jumpsuit, a three-piece velvet suit. (laughs) And he comes up to me and he informs me that he is Russia's greatest rapper. And uh, I need to meet with Snoop. And I said, oh, man, I'm sorry. He's not seeing anybody right now. And then he reminded me who he was. And it would be in your best interest for me to see Snoop. Because if not, you're going to have a problem. It's day 12 of the tour, okay? And uh, I just didn't have time. So what I did was like, okay, look, you got me, bro. I'm the decoy. He's not really behind me. He's down there. And I don't want any trouble. So I will I will take you to him. And he said, very good. You made, you made a wise decision. You know, I might have a job for you one day. I said, like, oh, <laughs> thank you. So as we walk to the thing, as I open the curtain, there's a flight of stairs going down. And he looks down, and as he went to say there's no Snoop there, I threw him. <laughs> into the darkness. Into the darkness. And as he tumbled down the stairs, uh, he could have been an opera singer because he was, had a really high-pitched scream. But his shoes came off. His purple <laughs> shoes just flipped off. And I closed the curtain and went back to my spot. So I figured he's going to be at least down there for a while. <laughs> And uh, I remember the manager, uh, Kevin Barkey, comes up and his face gets, he's Canadian, and he is about the most fair-skinned white guy on the planet. And whenever he gets frustrated, his whole face turns red. Uh, and I see him with a red face holding the shoe. Is like, do we need to talk about this? And I just said, I would prefer not to. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, he did sustain an injury, but I did do my job and, and kept him safe. And turns out he was, uh, he was a dangerous character. Oh, okay. So I did the right thing. Um Bouncer football player, pro wrestler, of course. Now you're uh, now on Fox. You write that a lot. All those jobs have something in common, and that you want to be prepared, you want to be ready, but also leave some room for spontaneity. Like your yep. wrestling matches are choreographed to a degree, but within that, you've got to have some room. You got for, to, to for create. Play. Yeah, you can't. There's. Um, I don't like to give away too much of the magic show, but there's two ways of doing things. There's spots, and then there's call it out there. Calling it out there is the harder of the crafts because you're basically the you and your dance partner are just going to work together uh, and just kind of play it by ear. Let the crowd dictate it or you dictate the crowd. And mm-hmm. uh, some things with camera angles and TV, you, you have to go over. But the best, most easiest stuff is when you're just like anything else. If you're trying to remember something, it never comes out right. Like if, if, if you gave me. You were going to ask me questions about inflation, and I had numbers in my head, and I would, but I didn't really prepare, and I was trying to remember it. My interview is not going to be very good when you ask me the question. Wrestling is very similar to that. So, and the same thing with acting and, and stand-up comedy, you have to prepare everything. For me, it, it started in football. It was film study. You you do the work on the field, but it's not over there. Then you got to go in. Like if you put four hours in the field, you got to put three hours in the in the tape room. 
And wrestling was the same way. You always have to be, I was always in, in film study, whether it was promos, wrestling, I would pick a, a classic wrestler and I would study him for a week and I'd try to take a few things from here and there. Fox, um, a lot of our stuff is live and you buy, and there's other people, great minds around you. You've got about a minute, a minute and a half to get your point across. And it, yeah. there's no, oh, I'd like to say this again. Or, oh, if I could just have a few more minutes. No, it doesn't work that way. So preparation is, is for me, is everything. And in all the film study, I probably watch... I would say probably four to five hours uh, a day of film, just breaking stuff down, looking at different things, getting prepared. A lot of it is the when I, I get off, from, uh, when we finish filming Gutfield, I go back to my hotel and I'm doing news film study for probably two hours really? each night huh. because I mean, and then I watch myself back and like, oh, this, up, oh, you took too long for that. So it's it's all a process and they're all to they're all relatable in terms of preparation. Yeah, see, I don't like hearing myself back. I know it's. it's oh, I hate it's, the sound of my own voice. Yeah, I hate it. It's, it's, it's a, like I don't think anyone who does. But when I hear myself talk, all I hear is marbles. <laughs> so I can't stand hearing the sound of my own voice. But it's it's important in terms of like being better. Um, one thing you kind of finish with is this idea of being accountable. And when you're a kid. It was their fault. It was their fault. It was their fault. But now, as a as a grown up, as a dad, um, you want to learn to own your own stuff, right? And right. also, and, and know yourself enough that not that you can't accept legitimate criticism, but know when that's invalid and that you know what you're doing. Right. And the only way you can do that is by being honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. My grandmother gave me really great advice at a really rough time in, in my childhood. I was dealing with some abuse with my uh, mother's uh, husband and I wanted to run away. I wanted to go back with them. Mm -hmm. And she basically said, there's no escape. And it's not what you're going through. It's your reaction to what you're going through is how you're going to be judged and remembered. And so I lived that with, it's my reaction. And that took all the power away from the negative stuff when, and never accepting no. So if someone does something bad to me, it's learning to settle your differences inside and owning every job that I was fired from or cut from football when uh, my appendix went out. I can look back and see things that I could have done better. And I focus on that. If I blame the coach for not liking me. He didn't like me. He was hating on me or whatever. I will never get out of that situation. And that will become my golden ticket of obscurity to where that is my out for everything. Mm -hmm. So you use that out instead of going, looking in the mirror going, man, you know what? If I was training better, if I wasn't out in the clubs those nights, maybe my, you know, the alcohol wouldn't have affected my appendix the way it did. So you can look at things of what you could have done better and react. Even if there's a million people saying, nope, WWE was wrong. They did you dirty. They fired you. Mm -hmm. It's my reaction. And I was able to pick up the pieces and move on. If I stayed there, I'd still be there. Well, the title of the book, Just Tyrus, uh, a memoir. It's good to talk to you, man. And congratulations again. Oh, thank you so much, man. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. 
One of the most recognizable outfits in American movie history is headed for the auction block. The blue and white checked gingham dress worn by Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz is quite the prize for some lucky collector. It's being auctioned next month in Bonham's classic Hollywood film and television sale. But the story behind the dress is a stunning lost and found drama all its own. There were originally multiple Dorothy dresses made for the 1939 film, and Bonham's director of popular culture, Helen Hall, says that four of the dresses are known to exist. The one up for auction was thought to be lost for decades at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., where it had been given to someone in the drama department in the early 70s. And last year, during a decluttering of an office, it was found in an old shoebox. Catholic University decided they'd auction it instead of keeping it and plans to use the proceeds to create a full-fledged film program in the drama department. The less-than-archival storage practice of the dress hasn't seemed to hurt its value. It already has a pre-sale estimate of between $800,000 and $1.2 million. Two of the four remaining dresses, including the one up for auction, have the blouse that was worn underneath it. The other one of those with a blouse sold at an auction in 2015 for more than a million and a half dollars. Aside from a piece that's been cut away, the dress is in good condition, and it's been determined that Judy Garland wore it in the movie in the scene where she is confronted in a castle by a threatening Wicked Witch of the West. If you don't have quite enough cash to buy the dress at auction, don't worry. You can still see a pair of Dorothy's ruby slippers at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., where admission is free. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. It's time for your Fox News commentary. What's on your mind? Long gone is the Democratic Party of your parents' generation. They have morphed and contorted themselves into a political party no longer relatable or recognizable to most of America. Today's Democratic Party embraces the extreme, rewards the radical, shuns the sensible, and caters to the contemptible. Not too long ago, there were Democrats who were concerned about the finances of the country. They were affectionately referred to as blue dog Democrats, who were worried about deficits and debt. There is no place for them in today's Democratic Party. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris just introduced the largest budget ever with the largest tax increase ever requested. There are very few blue dogs in Congress, and they are on their way to extinction. Leftist policies have become so extreme, even traditional liberals no longer recognize today's Democratic Party. With never-ending mask mandates, mandatory vaccinations, and control of individual self-determination, liberalism has been abandoned. Today's Democratic Party prioritizes illegal entry into the United States while abandoning the rule of law. They fight for the suspected and convicted criminals while ignoring the victims. Often you will hear Democrats refer to rural America with contempt, labeling them as clinging to their guns and their religion, while simultaneously lumping them together as uneducated. Rarely do you hear them talk about middle America, nor express a genuine understanding of what life is like outside of New York, Washington, and San Francisco. Democrats are losing blue-collar workers, parents, young voters, Hispanics, etc. It is difficult to find an area of growth for Democrats today. 
It is the policy that is repelling the voters. Inflation, energy, foreign policy, immigration, taxes, crime, and extreme positions on mask mandates, gender, and education are all driving people away from the Democratic Party. Beyond the policy positions, they also lack dynamic leadership. Clinton and Obama were charismatic personalities that brought people into the party. Not anymore. Joe Biden was supposed to be a uniter, a man with a plan, and a seasoned senator who could get things done in Congress. None of those turned out to be true. Combined with his poor communication skills and a vice president who speaks incoherently, there is not much hope for the Democratic Party's future. They have failed to build a bench of upcoming leaders that relates to anyone outside of New York and San Francisco. With policy that lurched to the far left and leadership that is aging out, today's Democratic Party is dead. While the leaders of the Democratic Party wonder out loud, why don't they like us more? Most Americans understand today's party no longer offers them a home. I'm Jason Chaffetz, Fox News contributor and the host of the Jason in the House podcast. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to Everyone Talks to Liz. Fox Business's Liz Clayman talks with entrepreneurs and executives about inspiring and motivational stories. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.